0: This episode was taped before German Chancellor Olaf Scholz visited Ukraine on June 16th and announced Germany wants Ukraine admitted into the EU, but extra steps are needed
1: before that
2: can happen. Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Serhati-Nelson. After Donald Trump left office 18 months ago, hopes were high on both sides of the Atlantic that relations between the United States and Germany would rebound. But with one global crisis after another, there hasn't been much time for either side to mend fences nor does Germany's new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, seem to have the rapport with Washington that his predecessor, Angela Merkel, had. So what is the state of German-U.S. relations in these precarious times? To help answer that question and more, I'm joined online by Laura von Daniels, who heads the America's Research Division at the Germany Institute for International and Security Affairs. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. And joining me in our Berlin studio is the International Correspondent York Lau and Jeremy Shapiro, who is Research Director at the European Council on Foreign Relations and a former advisor to the State Department during the Obama administration. Welcome, gentlemen.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
2: So, York, let me start with you. How do you view the current German-U.S. relationship? Has the Russian war in Ukraine brought Washington and Berlin closer together or pushed the partners further
3: apart? I would certainly say uh, it has brought the partners further together. The Biden administration is very careful not to put too much pressure in public on the German government. Um, my sense is that Washington is also pretty happy with the so-called Zeitenwende, the sea shift in the posture of Germany towards defense and, and weapon deliveries. There is a lot of criticism behind uh, the scene about Germany dragging its feet, uh, about the deliveries not being too forthcoming. But I would say it's definitely better than in the last year when there was a lot of fallout because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and other issues.
2: Jeremy, do you think the U.S. administration sees it the way Yorg is describing? And how does that relationship now compare to the one with the Obama administration, like the one Merkel and Obama had?
1: I don't see it exactly the same way that York does. It's maybe mostly a difference of perspective or of expectations. But the truth is that I, I did some research on this subject in January and February when I was in Washington discussing it with Biden administration officials. And, you know, it was weird because at the time, the discussion in Washington in the sort of public sphere was, was terrible. It's understandable if you, were, if you thought maybe that Germany was about to invade Ukraine rather than Russia the way people were talking about Germany. But in fact, when you went to talk to the Biden administration officials, they were completely relaxed about it. They were like, oh, Germany will be fine. And what I came to understand is that the reason that they weren't worried is because they expected so little. It was really the soft bigotry of low expectations. The U.S. administration has really kind of given up on Germany being part of the solution. Uh, They have, And they've managed to make Germany not part of the problem. So there are no problems in U.S.-German relations, but they're not really moving very far. And, and I think that that's a wasted opportunity as best. Could be a lot worse, so I sort of agree with Jörg. During the Obama administration, it was different because we had hope. We believed that Germany could be, and German-U.S. relations could be more than that. And I think what you see in the Biden administration now is that they've kind of given up on them being any better than they are.
2: Wow. Um, <laughs> so, what do you say to that, Yog I mean, do you think uh, that there is this sort of
1: soft bigotry of
2: soft bigotry of low, bigotry of low <laughs> expectation? That's well, a great that's phrase. A, I got to remember that. That's
1: a good <laughs> George way. W. Bush. But yeah. that's a
3: good way to put it. I I I think maybe both can be true. I mean, officially, uh, relations are much better, uh, and they're desperately trying both sides. I think uh, not to let the divide that Jeremy just described show. Because that would be uh, obviously very good for Putin and very bad for transatlantic relations and for Europe. So there's something unresolved there. I agree.
2: Laura, how is the energy crisis spurred by the war affecting transatlantic relations? At the onset, it seemed like President Biden was almost dictating to Germany about what would happen to Nord Stream 2. Has that changed and is there more parity now? I don't know, that's a a tricky uh, question here, because uh,
0: when we talk about energy and energy policy and the embargo, you always have to sort of differentiate between everything that's planned on oil and then gas, because our dependency in Germany in particular, but in Europe too in general, is the the gas-related dependency. And as long as we talk about oil, I think there's more common ground. The U.S. went ahead uh, with an oil embargo much earlier. The U.K. went along. And then the European Commission, I think, did a great job at at least signaling that uh, Brussels is willing to go down uh, that road as well. But with gas, it's a lot more complicated. And here, I think the Biden administration has been really uh, supportive and patient still because they know we are so dependent and it's so difficult to free yourself from that energy dependence. The question is, you know, is there, are we going to reach a tipping point at some moment uh, where,
2: you know, this patience will somehow uh, run out? (laughs) What do you say, Jeremy? Is that patience running out?
1: No, it's not really running out. Uh, Again, there were low expectations. The low expectations have been satisfied. The Biden administration decided when it created the oil embargo not to pressure The Europeans, very hard to move forward, and they have moved slowly, but surely they're not pressuring them really at all on natural gas. To the contrary, what the Biden administration is doing is is trying to arrange for Germany and other European countries to get liquefied natural gas from the U.S. and other sources in order to help wean them off of Russian gas. But I would say that they've been, the Biden administration is broadly satisfied with the progress, particularly that Germany has made, but that a lot of European countries have made in this regard, again, because they didn't have extraordinary expectations and they did understand from the beginning, and I think that was reflected in the Nord Stream decision of last summer, that this was a very difficult issue in terms of domestic politics and economy for Germany and for a lot of European partners.
2: Well, it was interesting uh, that Laura talked about patience, because I have to admit, when I saw that press conference between Joe Biden and Olaf Scholz back in February, it looked more like one side was dictating to the other. I mean, it's like we are not doing Nord Stream 2. You know, I mean, Biden was very adamant about that. And Olaf Scholz was sort of trying to be more diplomatic, I guess, or quiet. I mean, is there sort of this pressure... Uh, by the U.S. to sort of get Germany and, by extension, the rest of the partners, uh, the European partners, in line when it comes to the uh, relationship vis-a-vis Russia?
1: There is pressure, but I think that, as Jorg was sort of saying at the beginning, it's broadly worked relative to what the U.S. was hoping for. And so they are not dissatisfied with where they have been. And I think even if you go back to that Nord Stream decision or that press conference in February where they – appeared to have a difference on Nord Stream. What Olaf Scholz has said to Biden in the private meeting was, look, don't worry about this. If the Russians actually invade, as you say they will, we're going to kill this project. Uh, and Biden said, that's fine. And so they went out there with an agreement that reflected both the Germ- what Germans could do and what the Americans expected them to do, which again I think is better than falling out, but it does show you just how little expectations both sides have for the relationship.
2: Yog, you wrote a piece recently that noted uh, the Berlin policy on arms deliveries to Ukraine needs clarity and that at the moment it's confusing, if not annoying, uh, to Germany's partners. Is that foot dragging on arming Ukraine that different than what other members of NATO are doing? I mean, there's always a lot of talk and then what actually ends up getting delivered is something else.
3: Well, um, I think it's very important for Germany to be clearer than they are because they're not in the same position as other partners in Europe because Germany is supposed to be the central power in Europe in terms of its strength economically in terms of its position on the map in terms of its history and that's why there can be no policy of low expectations here and Germany has to be in the lead on these issues and That's why I think it's so dangerous to be so reluctant here, because we already see a huge cleavage in Europe on these issues, especially between the Northern and Eastern European partners and France and Germany. And this can end up being really, really very detrimental to European future. I mean, not just to what's happening in Ukraine, but also in the future. I mean, the distrust that is building here is really toxic, I think, for the European project. And that's why I think uh, um, Germany has to do more, even though we all know that the German military is short of arms. Um, they can be a mediator in Europe to you know, get things moving, but that's not what they do.
2: Laura, has Germany lost credibility in the eyes of the United States and of its European partners? I think it definitely has in the eyes of its uh, European
0: partners, in particular um, in the East and Central Eastern Europe. That's a fact. But it's also related to the fact that while uh, this government, the German government, is actually doing things, you know, in terms of weapons and equipment deliveries, we are now, if you look at the, at the raw numbers, we're not doing that badly but there's little notice of what's been done in in past month. And there certainly was no sort of uh, leadership, not in speeches, not in, probably also not in bilateral exchanges with our neighbors and probably also not with the US that uh, was giving people any hope that we might be able to be moving a little faster than we did so far. So uh, that definitely needs to change. But I just wanted to add one thing, to what's been said already, uh, I think the Biden administration did a great job at uh, supporting those people in our government coalition that early on took it, you know, took a decision to lead the way towards a new policy. So they were supportive of Annalena Baerbock, but perhaps not so much of the Chancellor. And in the end, turns out Germany took exactly that direction that she was signaling already in February this year at the Munich Security Conference and earlier even. So, but it's probably hard to find the right people in this government to support and uh, to turn them into leaders or to uh, make them understand that they they need to take along the Germans, uh, their constituencies, and so on.
2: We've talked about the Russian invasion in Ukraine and what impact that's had on U.S.-German relations, but I want to talk about domestic issues in the United States for a moment and how that's maybe changing the viewpoint or making, creating concerns among the German public. For example, um, the anticipated shift in congressional power with the midterms or even like escalating gun violence and the inability, the U.S. government's inability, or in this case, the Biden administration's inability, you know, to act or to be able to get something accomplished. Is that sort of making Germany nervous? I mean, is there sort of a reluctance to maybe get too close? You know, Because that's certainly what happened during the Trump era, is that Germany really started to stand on its own somewhat, or started to make more noise about standing on its own <laughs> rather than with, with the partners.
3: Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, you hear that a lot. Uh, people are worried about the midterms. People are worrying about 2024 already here in Berlin. But uh, I find that quite paradoxical, because if you're so worried about these things, you should do more. But it sometimes it seems to be um, having the opposite effect that, you know, because we cannot trust the Americans to stay the course or the Biden administration to stay in office in the longer term, we should be more cautious. I mean, the opposite is the case. I mean, we should be more focusing on you know being more uh, self-sufficient here with with our European partners. But at the moment, it's the U.S. that is bringing this alliance together and holding it together. So we're actually uh, uh, falling back on the times of the Cold War and we're not actually moving forward here. So that's why I can't actually hear this anymore, that you know people are worrying about the U.S. We should stop doing that and focus on our own agenda here.
2: Jeremy you were sort of grimacing when I was asking the question is there something you want to add or do you agree
1: uh, No I broadly agree with Jorg I think that there's been a there's been a uh, problem almost in the way that the Biden administration has related so well to the German government uh, that they've given the kind of German government what they want, which is the ability not to be responsible in global affairs. And that means that they're falling into the old trap that Jörg talked about, that they feel like, well, the Americans will take care of it. We don't have to pay the difficult domestic political price to deal with these things. Whereas what they should be doing, anticipating the very, very real possibility that there will be in office in 2025, an administration, whether it's Trump or not, that really doesn't feel the same way at all about Russia, about Europe, about allies, about NATO. And this is a genuine risk and they should be preparing for that. And the way to prepare for that is to do more than the Biden administration wants. It is specifically to repair its intra-European relations, which have really suffered. And it's to be thinking about how to take on a leadership role if the Americans are no longer there. And what's so strange about this is that if you talk to German officials, they agree with every word, and then they don't do it.
2: So this takes us back to the Zeitenwende, which was such an amazing speech Schultz gave, but there's been limited follow-through. Laura, do you have hope at this point that the Zeitenwende is going to happen in the way Schultz envisioned it? And if it doesn't, what impact does that have on U.S.-German relations? I'm always hopeful uh, <laughs> regarding uh, sort of the, the public
0: discourse we have in Germany. I think it's moving already, but it will be extremely difficult over the next month, in particular over the next years, if this is going to be an extended conflict or war, which it looks like, very much looks like that, to keep uh, attention and also empathy uh, sort of the German population uh, moving politicians towards taking more serious decisions. You know, it's, it takes leadership. And again, it's sort of difficult to to find uh, the right people, I think, at this point, who are willing to take on that responsibility. But that's not just the case in Germany. I think other countries are having a similarly difficult
2: time there. I think Jörg wanted yeah. to add something. Go yeah. ahead.
3: I just want to add uh, two ironies about the Zeitung Uh I think one is that only this government with the social Democrats in charge and the Greens in government can accomplish something like a Zeitenwende Wende, because if they were in opposition, there's no way you could find a majority for that kind of rearmament and uh, for that new posture towards foreign and security policy in Europe. And at the same time, these parties are uniquely um, delicate when it comes to these issues that have to be addressed, like weapons deliveries, like, as we just talked about it, going into the lead and not waiting for the U.S. to say, "Okay, you can do this now. Uh, So that's why I think we're in kind of in limbo with the Seitenwender.
1: Yeah, I think just maybe to elaborate on that a little bit, because it's great to have a vendor. It's great to spend 100 billion euros on defense. I think Germany really needs that. But I think it's important to emphasize that not just any vendor will do. And if you look at the way in which they've seemed to have structured it so far, it's structured to operate underneath U.S. leadership. So the first decision that they made was to buy the U.S. F-35. And, you know, there's there's a lot of good military reasons to do that. I want to completely pan it. But the message it sends is that there's not going to be a European fighter, uh, next generation European fighter, uh, that we're going to be supporting the American defense industry rather than the European or German defense industry with this 100 billion euros, and that we're not looking to create a leadership role even with this spending. What we're looking to do is satisfy our allies and satisfy the Americans so that they don't yell at us for not spending enough. But we're not really looking to take on the burdens of leadership. What that shows is that if the uh, if the Republicans come into power, there's other problems. Germany won't be ready, either structurally or politically, to turn the Zeitung Wende into what it really needs to be, which is a leadership Zeitung Wende.
2: So the sea change may not be coming. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the state of transatlantic relations, as well as the impact China is having. Stay tuned.
0: I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on
2: WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. This is Common Ground Berlin, and I'm your host, Soraya sarhadi Nelson. And I'm the senior producer, Dina el Said. Each week, we bring you a podcast aimed at deepening your understanding of critical issues in Germany and beyond. But to make our podcast even better, it's important for us to hear what you think. You can share that with us by rating the show on your podcast app. You can also write us a review on the platform you use to listen to our episodes. We look forward to your feedback and join us again next Monday on Common Ground Berlin. Hello, this is Abby, presenter and co creator of Berlin Briefing. Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an eight to ten minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin. I'm Soraya Sarhadi nelson and joining me to talk about the state of transatlantic relations are Die Zeit international correspondent Jörg Lau, Jeremy Shapiro of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and Laura von Daniels of the Germany Institute for International and Security Affairs. We've been talking about the impact of the Russian war in Ukraine on German-U.S. relations, but there is another world power that is front and center for Berlin and Washington, namely China. Laura, how have China's actions as of late affected transatlantic relations, like its refusal to condemn Moscow and Beijing's retaliatory moves toward Lithuania after its symbolic recognition of Taiwan? Are Germany and the U.S. in lockstep when it comes to policies toward Beijing?
0: Yeah, thank you. I think we're heading uh, that way. The German position, as much as the position of other European um, countries, has moved much more towards taking a more a robust approach towards China. You can see that in decisions taking by the European Commission, but also statements and probably also uh, China policy that is currently being written in the foreign ministry in Germany. Um, so I think there's already a change happening. But I guess that the U.S. Uh, wants us to go much further um, on that um, topic. And again, I'm not seeing any uh, anyone in the current German government taking on that leadership role. So they might, you know, we might be heading towards more frustration and critique from the U.S. side. And I also think um, this issue is of even larger concern to the U.S. foreign policy community to find a common approach or to to take a tougher uh, stance towards China than uh, sort of lack of leadership in the Ukraine uh, war situation.
2: Jörg, do you agree with Laura's assessment?
3: Yeah, uh, I agree, basically. But you have to keep in mind that uh, the China issue is obviously much more complicated than uh, the issues we have with Russia now. The dependence on uh, on Russia is basically one thing. It's about energy. Dependence on, on China is a much broader thing. I mean, it's it's China's a market. China uh, is an innovator, China is also an important actor in uh, international relations uh, with many other partners that we also deal with. China is much more complicated. But I think you can see that uh, the experience of the crisis with Russia and the dependency on oil and gas is beginning to change the uh, debate on China. And that's a good thing. But we're only beginning to see the full uh, range of issues that we have to Address here.
2: What is the American view, Jeremy?
3: Look, the American
1: view is as it was as was stated that they always want uh, the allies to do more. I mean, that's the American view of everything. To me, that's not the interesting point. I kind of think I I don't think I would criticize the answers, but I might even criticize the question, because what we're always asking is, are the U.S. and Germany agreeing on this topic, or are they close, mm-hmm. or they not close? That's not the interesting point. The interesting point is Germany needs its own policy on China. It doesn't need to be assessing its policy vis-a-vis the United States. China is super important to Germany. It's super important to the United States for somewhat different reasons. It would be quite natural for them to have different policies. Uh, They are very good allies, and they will need to negotiate and compromise on that policy. And they're succeeding at that broadly. The bigger worry to me is not that they will disagree, but that the German policy will be completely subsumed in the American And therefore, there will be no fights, there will be no disagreements, uh, there will be, the summits will be very, very comfortable and the news conferences pleasant. But at the end of the day, Germany won't have the China policy it needs and then that will erode the political foundations of the alliance. I think it's really important that we need not to judge the alliance or the US-German relations based on them not having disputes. They should have disputes. The quality of the alliance is determined by how well they deal with those disputes. And I think they're actually quite capable of dealing with them well if Germany and other European allies stand up and say what they need and what they want.
2: Well, that's a good point. And actually, it, we're going to talk about the G7 a little bit, which is coming up because obviously that ties into this as well. But first, let me ask about uh, the new U.S. ambassador to Germany. It took a long time for her to be named and for her to get here. But has Amy Gutman helped ease any tension or disputes that might exist, or that do exist, between Washington and Berlin? And I'll ask Jörg first.
3: Oh, that's a tough one, because uh, she has been in charge of the embassy here only for several months now, I think.
2: But she's gotten out and about quite yeah, a bit. Yeah,
3: sure, sure, she does. And more than her predecessors, she's in a very good position to actually achieve something here. And also because it's a good situation actually to to bring some change about because uh, of all the things we talked about there are many common interests here there are divergent interests maybe on china but there's a lot to mediate there and i think uh, it's one of the most interesting times for an ambassador to be here these months and years ahead
2: well, it's interesting because you talk about the short time she was here. I think Rick Rinnell was not even here 24 hours when, uh, <laughs> and he was the previous ambassador under Trump who managed to anger uh, his German hosts and, and uh, create quite, a, quite she, a bit of controversy. She definitely
1: has the advantage of following up on him, who's a little bit like <laughs> appointing a bull to be an ambassador to a China shop. I think she's doing a great job, but I think we should understand what uh, an American ambassador does these days. It's mostly about Public diplomacy, and she's—I think she's brilliant at it—and I think she's an important element of the U.S.-German relationship, particularly after following the, the disaster that was Rick Grinnell. But ultimately, the policy is about uh, the relationships between the capitals, which happened quite directly, and that's where I think the compromises are made. Uh, and so, I think while she's doing a good job, and I think it's a plus, I don't think that's going to be the essence of the relationship. Who the ambassador is, and I think we saw that when there was no ambassador and the relationship uh, plugged along. So I think it's, you know, it's quite fun to think about the next Republican administration's ambassador because he should be equally as noteworthy uh, in town. Uh, But the essence of the relationship lies elsewhere.
2: Laura, German media are reporting that Chancellor Scholz, French President Emmanuel Macron, and Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi are traveling to Kiev before the G7 meets at the end of June. It will be their first time there since the Russian invasion began on February 24th. In terms of transatlantic relations, do you think the trip is a good idea or is it too little too late? I
0: think it's a, it's a good idea that um, they're finally doing that. I think it's also a great idea to uh, have the German chancellor be joined uh, by the French president and the Italian uh, prime minister. I could imagine it would be great to have the Polish uh, head of government come along That would be even much better (laughs) as a symbol or as a sign, as a public uh, diplomacy communication towards our eastern neighbors. And yeah, let's hope that they also find a more uh, stringent way of implementing policies there that would help Ukraine. I think that's the even more important part here than the symbolism of going
2: to Ukraine. Either of you gentlemen want to add something, Jörg?
3: I think it means that Ukraine will be granted candidacy status uh, because otherwise they, it would be really crazy for them to go and say, no, no, you can't become a member. I mean,
2: maybe as a consolation prize. No,
1: no. I I mean, (laughs) you don't get to be a member of the EU, but Olaf Scholz will visit you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least I hope there will be uh, something that they bring to Kiev. I mean, they cannot come empty-handed. It has to be either weapons. I was going to say maybe something. one of those old
2: leopard uh, panzer <laughs> tanks that they won't let Spain send. <laughs> no, not to not to crack jokes about this. Yeah. But seriously, I mean, they're, you're saying they have to come with something in hand. Yeah, that it, it's not just a visit for the cameras, if you will.
3: Because Olaf Scholz already said, you know, I'm not just going there for a photo op. So now he has to deliver something
2: so let's talk a little bit about the ukrainian admission to the eu it's a bit off topic but who wants this besides ukraine
3: you
1: know when i was in the u.s government our policy and i think it's still the policy was to favor the admission of any country on earth to the european union we would have been willing to have them take china because it's no sweat off the u.s brow to put countries into the EU. And we recognize that it's a real effective mechanism for stabilization, for democratization, for economic prosperity. So you certainly won't encounter any opposition. And I think you'll encounter some support for bringing Ukraine into the EU, although the United States doesn't really have that much to give because it's not the U.S. labor market that will be open up to Ukrainians. It's not the U.S. funds that will be going into their agriculture, into their structural adjustment um, accounts. So I think... The bigger question and the somewhat more difficult question for the U.S. is whether they should support these French and other proposals to support a degree of association with the EU that is short of membership but somehow closer. And I think the U.S. is in a little bit of a struggle there because they don't want to cut off the idea that Ukraine can be a member of the EU, uh, but they are likely to think that those types of arrangements are useful. So I think that the the policy that they will settle on is to say, we support all of these different efforts to integrate Ukraine with its European neighbors, but we don't think that any of them should preclude EU membership.
2: So my last question goes to all of you, um, and we'll start with Laura. What can we expect to see out of the G7 summit when it comes to U.S. and German relations? Is it going to be a united, strong front? Um, any surprises that you're expecting and will will this also help uh, perhaps solidify the policies on other issues, be it uh, Russia or China?
0: Yeah, I think um, U.S. engagement in the G7 uh, with European partners, there is also always a way of sort of doing some a little bit of an agenda setting for the EU itself. So you, you uh, give along um, homework in a way, and I think uh, there are some very critical um, policy issues here between the EU and the US that are also being discussed in the framework of the Traded Technology Council. So if you think about uh, stuff like sanctions implementation, export controls, investment screening, all of these questions are also tied to uh, European or German uh, relationship with China, Um, I think we will see more activity there. And then also, of course, in the whole area of security policy, I think uh, there will be some agenda setting taking place at G7 as well. And it's also important to sort of broaden the coalition between uh, not only the US and the EU, but also other um, important members of sort of the Western coalition. So to sort of streamline policy here between uh, the transatlantic broader community and then Asia important partners like japan and others so yeah i think we will see um specific uh, outcomes of the g7 meeting as well as sort of broader strategy discussions but they will be related very much to the china question that at least uh, would be my presumption
2: jeremy any
1: thoughts Thoughts? No, not really (laughs) thoughts, but maybe uh, reactions. Look, I mean, I I think that the G7 will be a triumph of unity. Uh, The news conference will look great, except, you know, the suits won't be that great. But other than that, it will look wonderful. Uh, And they'll say incredible numbers of kind words about each other. And that's, of course, what you want at a summit. But again, I'm coming back to a theme I hit on before. Unity shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to have an effective policy that works for both sides. And I think specifically because from an American perspective, the G7 is a way of setting the agenda for the European Council, which if you think about it, is it's an incredible thing to say, but it's undoubtedly true. This isn't what's going on. What's going on is that the Americans have assumed a leadership role of the G7 and of the transatlantic relationship, which is out of step with the times and which can't last and that neither side is really preparing for that, and so what I would love to see at the G7, but I don't think we will, is some disputes that are settled and dealt with amicably and effectively, but actually surface so that we understand that both sides have an opinion.
2: Yorg, what does Germany need out of the G7?
3: Well, I totally agree with Jeremy on this one. Oh my and God,
2: Germany American yeah, yeah. agreement. So,
3: <laughs> but it's because I, I, think I had... told him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, back to an old pattern here. Uh, I think uh, you have to see the g seven meeting in in the context of this festival of big summits that we're going to see with the EU summit and with the NATO summit coming on coming up and and it's going to be a, a festival of you know Western unity, which is obviously necessary in the face of of the challenges. But uh, Jeremy is totally right. I mean, uh, uh, let's hope that behind the scenes, they will also work on these, on these legitimate um, differences that are there and find a way to deal with them productively.
2: Unfortunately, we are out of time and we'll have to end our conversation there. My guests are Die Zeit international correspondent Jörg Lau, Laura von Daniels of the Germany Institute for International and Security Affairs, and Jeremy Shapiro of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks to all of you for being on Common Ground Berlin.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and I'm Soraya Sarhati Nelson. This episode was made possible by a grant from the Checkpoint Charlie Foundation. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CGBerlinPodcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, CommonGroundBerlin.com.